Hello, my name is Richard Bolas and welcome to the Dad Mindset Show, where we explore different perspectives on being a father. This episode, I talk with Jason O'Loughlin. Jason is the deputy head of the senior school at Christian College Geelong. We touch on what you can do as a parent to help your child with school and Jason's approach to breaking through to some of the more troubled kids. Jason also describes his recent tussle with a mountain, which left him helicopter lifted to emergency, and how that, amongst a few other things, has really changed his outlook as a dad. Jason is one of those genuine human beings who just lifts any room that he walks into and inspires you to improve in some way. I hope you really enjoy listening to him. Jason O'Loughlin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Doctor. No, it's it's great to have you uh, have you have you online. It's uh, it's been a, a long time coming. Smiley face at the other end of a Skype. <laughs> yeah, yep. It certainly works out well, doesn't it? You know, we can uh, live millions of miles apart or not that far apart, and it's still pretty convenient. Do it easy, yeah. <laughs> and I hasten to add, I'm not actually a doctor, am I? No, nah, but I see you as a doctor. You're a renaissance <laughs> man. You're just a man of many talents. <laughs> I think I coined the phrase calling you the doctor, didn't I? Was it me? I'm I pretty know. sure. I like it was me. I'm pretty sure you did. It was in the in the sauna, wasn't it? It's going out to podcast land now, anyway. So I'm hoping it catches on. <laughs> yeah. Actually, t- tell um, so tell the story how the sauna like started up. What was that all about? Because I I wasn't there at it, at its inception. The sauna. Good question. I think that came. We were talking just before we started about lifestyle change for me having been you know sporty competitive surfer all those uh, sorts of things and then uh, a few body changes and suddenly finding out a bit of arthritis around the place looking for different ways to stay fit and healthy the sauna started as a semi-social sort of catch up with guys when I couldn't exercise which turned out to be a, a workout of its own which ended up being get in there do a few cycles 10 minutes hot 10 minutes cold hot cold hot cold which gives you a great you know, uh, cardiovascular workout, and you get to have a bit of banter while you're in there. Yeah, quite a lot of banter. <laughs> yeah. I think that might be where the health benefits really come from, is uh, getting in a room with a bunch of blokes and talking complete rubbish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the social social part of it can't be denied. It's, uh, it's gold. Well, there's plenty of studies around sort of showing how good sauna is for you, and, you know, there's plenty of hypothesis, I suppose, but I seriously think the actually getting in a room and talking to people probably half of it if not more yeah i'd i'd totally agree with you it's uh definitely something that i look forward to it's um and it's not just sitting in a box uh eating a, a hot box with yourself that that wouldn't be half as much fun well that'd be kind of weird man <laughs> yeah it would <laughs> although i feel sorry for the other the other patrons that 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 sort of uh happen happen across across a group of like 15 guys in a sauna talking trash who are getting right into it yeah with just some real smack talk and then you see some <laughs> you see occasional worried face that opens the door and they back away and then i feel guilty i feel like we haven't been very inclusive no no you I, don't see I, so many people in that little sauna anyway i i I reckon the the whole group is very inclusive. It's like, come on, come on, come on in, come on, don't don't yeah. be shy. And then they sort of come in and go, oh my god, what have I got myself into? It's good fun, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel I kind of communicate a bit differently in the sauna. I don't know if it happens to you. Sometimes you know your heart rate goes up a little bit in there. I find myself speaking really quickly sometimes. I don't know if that's it. I seem to pack a lot of conversation into a ten minute stint. I don't know if that happens to you. I find it's pretty intense in the sense that you. Talk to the person next to you, 
because the people across the way, you can hardly see them anyway, but you can tell that there's some other conversations going on over there. It's, uh, it's a totally different situation. It's good fun, isn't it? Yeah. Have you been in there recently? I went in there today, actually. <laughs> Look at you living the dream. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while, though. Yeah. So uh, it's the uh, first time in a while, but it, it was definitely nice. So uh, always good, good to fit it in. Now, um, you touched on the journey before um, getting into the sauna life. Can you give us a bit of that sort of history over the, the last couple of years? About me personally, and yeah, I think a big, a big thing for me has been a bit of an identity change, I guess. I was the you know, fit guy, surfing all the time. That's where my sort of endorphins came from. If ever I needed some, it was just run, surf, sail, you know, go and do something sort of thing. Um, I think it started about six or seven years ago. I was a, a little slip on a skateboard, just getting a, a little bowl up in Fitzroy, hand down, something that would be maybe a little bit of a jarring injury or you know, a little bit of a tear or something that would heal up over a short period of time, didn't heal up in the normal way. Tried all the usual things, went to physio. Oh, you might have a slap tear when you got it checked out. Yeah, not too big a deal, a bit of a um, cartilage tear. Went and had a repair, which made it a bit of a longer thing, which is not that uncommon not that uncommon of an injury. Um, then it wasn't long after the similar thing happened to my knee, uh, surfing a winky pot, pulling into a wave, really not copying much of a punishing and uh, tore the cartilage in my knee. Not long after that, hip, same thing, our shoulder and all sorts. I found myself with a few cartilage problems, which after a period of time, surgeons were starting to slip the arthritis word in there, and I realised that I'd got arthritis at a pretty uh, young sort of age. And that's been a big change for me. I mean, we've got a, on a podcast here talking about parenting. It's changed what I thought I was as a dad, you know, not a, not always surfing footy, all those sort of things, but having to work around those things and find, find alternatives. The sauna is an example we're talking about there. Yeah, that's an example of a way to go and do something without doing the traditional thing that you'd seen your dad do. So that's been a big, big eye-opener for me. Yeah. And you've had some pretty, like you had a big spill at Christmas, didn't you? Yeah, just to top it off, I was sort of getting going, I suppose, okay at the end of last year. Finally back on the mountain bike with Addis, the seven-year-old, just rolling around. We went up to uh, Bright to do some downhilling in the mountains. Addis is a pretty capable sort of seven-year-old, so we're actually doing the, getting dropped up to the top of the mountain and doing the downhill trails and all that sort of thing, building up over a few days and... Um, yeah, it must have been the night of the third or fourth day up there. We're staying with a couple of uh, friends of ours. The kids have sort of had enough for the day, so we head up for a couple of extra runs, which is just the dads. Um, yeah, done it. One thing leads to another one. It's just the boys are going a little bit faster, and, yeah, pretty big pretty big go down, actually. I don't remember exactly what's uh, happened. I think I've taken off one jump and probably just pulled up a bit short on the landing jump. Uh, one way or another, I'm 25 metres down the hill from where my bike impacted. Uh, wake up, helmet smashed. My mate's looking over me. He's, he's like, oh, I think I'm all right. I think I'm okay. And he's, mate, don't know get an ambulance. So I can't get an ambulance here in the middle of nowhere in the, the forest sort of thing. I said, I'll, I'll try and get up. And tried to get up and my body felt like broken biscuits. And long story short, yeah, broken back, broken ribs, broken shoulder, broken finger. Deltoid was sort of torn off in a bit of in a bit of a mess. So, yeah. Long story short, into the hospital that was a couple of hours away. Woke up the next morning. We were um, 
we're heading away on a month's holiday, like a month's family holiday, uh, working our way up the east coast of Australia. And I, this is a real low point for me. Wake up in the hospital. There's uh, Laura, my wife, two kids, Addison Quinn. And, uh, Addis said to me, uh, Dad, does this mean the holiday's off? And that was a real, real heartbreaker because, yeah, sure enough, we're four days in and we're basically heading home, backing up sort of thing. Dad's got a neck brace on and Dad's done it again. Oh, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, low point. Yeah, you said like, and, and I remember your comment was your family looks forward so much to the holiday and your wife especially, you said, really deserved it and you're like, oh, just couldn't believe it happened at that point. Yeah, I think that was my me getting my head around body changes. I think as I've had, you know, described a bunch of what seemed like injuries, you know, things that I'd recovered from completely. You know, the last couple of years have been a run of those things. I mean, the summer before had been recovering a hip. So the kids were like, finally, dad's ready to go. And just when we're getting going, bang, something again. In hindsight, I'm like, hang on, my body's actually changed a bit. I can't do all those things as I might have wanted to. So yeah, we're finding a new way. And, you know, weirdly, off the back of that, and yeah, we missed some of that camping time. There's been heaps of blessings in disguise that like we've spent lots of great time together since then doing different things, sitting on a pier and fishing or reading or whatever it is. So we've actually spent at least as much time doing quality stuff with the kids, even though it's in a completely different guise to what I would have expected. Yeah, if not more, because yeah. you've you've spent a, a bit more time at home over the summer as well, haven't you, before getting back to work? Yeah, totally. So there's that as well. Sure, there's times when, you know, take the kids down to Auskick or whatever, I'd love to be kicking the footy with them. But, yeah, just coming to terms with the fact that it's it's being there more than the exact body movement kind of thing. So, yeah, it's been an adjustment. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier about how not all the things like your dad did. I mean, what was your upbringing like? What was How, how was uh, your relationship with your dad? Was he very much the outdoor sort of sportsman and surfer? Um, he wasn't a surfer. Both my parents were very competitive sort of people, I suppose, in lots of ways. Um, hard working, both of them. My mum was the first Australian Australian triathlon champion, so she actually won the first one they ran. You know, that was early 80s sort of thing. Um, Dad was a cyclist and a runner, so they were both competitive people. My upbringing was good. I grew up on a farm um, just outside of Geelong, small farm, 300-acre farm. Um, certainly plenty of chances to, de- to develop heaps of uh, resilience and independence and all that kind of thing. Maybe a kind of slightly isolated upbringing. Um, I was the oldest sibling. I didn't have a brother or sister until much later on. I was the oldest cousin. There were no kids sort of nearby around us. So I had a pretty, yeah, I suppose an independent sort of upbringing. So I spent a fair bit of alone time as a kid, building cubbies, building rafts, doing all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I had a, I had a good relationship with my dad. Um, a lot of it was around practical things though, I suppose. So it might be doing something on the farm. It might be building something. We had great time on Saturday mornings. Every Saturday morning when I was a young kid would always be doing a fun project for me, whether it was building, making a paddle or making some starting blocks for running or, you know, we're always sort of doing something practical like that. So, yeah, we had a, a good and practical relationship, but my dad was probably, you know, had that bit of old school about him as well where, you know, we would never dig too, you know, dig too deeply into feelings or anything like that. Yeah, so some some similarities to how I parent, but a few differences as well. 
Yeah. What What would you take as the similarities with how you sort of look after Addison Quinn? Well, the similarities is the the desire to just be doing something, you know, wanting to do something with them all the time. The differences, I, I guess it's hard to sort of assess yourself. One of the big differences is I'm probably a, a more sensitive soul. So I am very uh, keen to always be checking on how they're feeling, like asking them uh, questions or what do they think is going well or what are they happy with and all that sort of stuff, uh, rather than focusing too much on the results. My dad was a real, you know, he was a competitive guy and a results, a results-driven sort of guy. Um, so I think I've kind of moved away from that a fair bit. Um, yeah, more interested in talking to kids about what they're working on, what they're interested in, picking up on that and following their lead a bit more, I think. Yeah. I think I followed my dad's lead pretty closely and I'm hoping um, I'm allowing my kids to lead a little bit. What are, what are they sort of leading with at the moment? Anything that's sort of jumping out? Um, Addison is massive into the bike riding. He goes through phases of just doing things full on. So the two the two boys are pretty different. I don't know if your your kids are like this. Um, and I know there's patterns with firstborn and secondborn and all that sort of thing. Um, Addison has got some classic firstborn traits. Deep thinker, um, very logical, takes things pretty seriously. Um, and goes hard, you know, wants to do his do his best on everything. Quinny, the little one, is nearly an opposite, I suppose. Very sensitive, very cuddly, um, not worried about first and last. Just wants to just wants to be friendly and kind and serving and share all his stuff. So, yeah, the stuff they're they're into is kind of the normal stuff, I suppose. Addis is big into his into his bike riding. Um, he's playing Beyblades at the moment, which is um, spinning tops, if you want, but. Um, yeah, he's into all that sort of stuff. Also, then we found a praying mantis on the weekend, which has become the little pet. So, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Cheap. Well, actually, it's a classic example of what Addis is like. Found this insect in the garden. I was like, oh, that'd be cool. Collect that. I thought it was a stick insect. Put it in a box, bring it in. Oh, check this out, boys. Yeah, I've got a stick insect. Addis, he's seven. He said, hmm, it's a pretty big, pretty big mandible for a stick insect. <laughs> I think it might be you might be praying mantis. <laughs> like, oh, oh uh, yeah, it could be. Let's look it up. Look it up together. Sure enough, he was right. It was a praying mantis. Like, how, do you, how do you know the difference between a stick insect, which obviously eats leaves, and a praying mantis, which eats insects? It's like, oh, oh you know, I've studied, I've studied mini beasts. We've done it at school. We've done a whole unit on mini beasts. I'm like, the kid's in grade one. Is it, you know, teaching me these things. It was pretty cool. So that was our, our little experience over the weekend was – working out where we're going to get some insects from. The boys froth, they're hunting around the house, they're looking for daddy long legs, they're ripping their legs off, they're poking them in. So, yeah, they'll pick up on what's going. <laughs> now, because um, you're dep- deputy head of senior school of uh, Christian College, what, right, have you, yeah. what, what have you actually taken from that and brought back into the house looking after the boys? Because you've, you've iterated a lot of times teaching, what, a couple of thousand kids now? Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's a bit of a, I don't know if this is right. It feels like my wife and I, we're both teachers. It feels like a pretty big head start to have spent a lot of time with other people's kids. And I mean, you don't spend hours with every every one of them. Um, and now as I've got a leadership role, I'm not sort of in the classroom all the time. But you do spend a lot of time with the unusual cases. You know, in my role, you'll spend times with the kids who are having a tough time. 
to spend time with the kids who are advanced or doing something different or successful. So I actually get to sort of see a really good cross-section of kids. I think the thing that's been probably helpful for me, just from hanging around with lots of different kids, you really see a pattern, like good patterns emerging, of kids and their parents. It'll be You might be dealing with a kid who's having a difficult time or they've done something, you know, it's not sort of fitting with the community norms or whatever. And you start to get to a point where, like, I've got some sense of what this kid's parents might be like. And sure enough, the kid's parents are as you think as you think they might be. So I reckon that's been really helpful for me. I can't remember who said it, but um, there's this. I might have even been from one of those Steve Bidoff books. I think I think it was him that said, you know, one of the biggest problems with parenting is that parents want to be the kid's friend before they want to be their parent or they're not willing to sort of say no to kids. And I reckon I've learned that from teaching that these parents who desperately, desperately want the best for their kids, you know, they're sacrificing a lot to send them to a private school, then want to also be their best friend all the time and back their kid every single time. And they're starting to forget that maybe the kid may have made a mistake and may, you know, made it to look at that. So that's been really, I'm probably overly cautious of not doing that. Yeah. And so what's yeah, your so- approach then? Try, I try to take a level approach. Um, I've had to go in. I've chosen to go in and talk to my kids, you know, teachers at school and all that sort of stuff. And I really try to do almost the opposite, I suppose. So I'm chatting to my uh, son's teacher. The sort of questions I'd be asking is, you know, once I've learned what's going on, oh, so how can we support this from home or what would you like from me or, um, you know, what could we be doing? This is me talking to my uh, kid's teacher. What could we be doing to be uh, using the same language? So I sort of say, oh, what are you saying here? We might say the same sort of things at home. Because um, the best outcomes are when teachers and parents partner to raise their kids. Um, yeah, so rather than uh, trying to stick up for the kid, yeah. whether something's right or wrong, just looking at how we can work together to support the growth of this kid. So I reckon I've sort of taken that at home. It's not sort of like that I don't trust what my son says um i suppose it's just keeping an open mind to the fact that your own kid isn't perfect and they're not right all the time it's one perspective yeah 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 so that's been really really helpful i think there's been a big change over the last couple of generations i think if you got uh, into trouble at school two generations ago and then a note went home or something like that you'd probably get a slap around at home just say look don't get in trouble at school <laughs> almost the opposite happens 99 percent of the time now the kid gets in trouble at school you know contacts made home an email a phone call or whatever and the defense comes from the parents the parents are almost like defense attorneys i know it sounds you know sounds a bit unreasonable but it, that's that's a generalization that's what's happening the, the parents are trying to defend their kids rather than say hey let's get together and work out how we can help this kid oh wow and um, you mentioned some of the, like, obviously seeing kids and, and working with kids at the extremes. Like, what about at the, the extreme end where kids are really troubled? What sort of learnings have you taken from that side of things? Are there any particular cases that stand out or you remember uh, and you've actually worked through something with, with one of the kids that really worked well? Yeah. There's lots of things. This might sound a bit cliche because i've in different roles i've dealt with lots of troubled kids and that troubled kids can 
uh, manifest itself in lots of different ways. It might be bad behaviour, it might be withdrawal, it might be other, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that kids will do to let you know some, something's wrong. One thing which is a bit of a cliche, but I don't think there's any bad kids, there's only bad behaviour, and those bad behaviours are really indicators that there's something going on there. Um, but then how to get to what's really going on, that's the that's the craft of teaching, I suppose. I remember you said an, an anecdote. I remember meeting a kid when I was in a, at another school in a housemaster, head of house sort of role, where welcoming the, the new kids in, a you know, new batch of kids that are going to be with me for the next five years sort of thing. And there was one kid that just stood out the second I saw him. He'd, uh, it's a fairly expensive private school. He'd arrived there with two cans of mother. Uh, he'd drunk in there too enormous energy drinks it must have been a liter and a half of uh, energy drink he was off his chops he uh, dropped the two cans onto the ground stomped both of them with his feet so he was wearing these cans like shoes uh, and was just like sort of stomping around and pushing pushing kids over the principal sort of said to me i won't give his name but uh, that kid there you know we put him with you we want you to, to kind of look after him i was like what the heck is going on here and over the first term and a half the kid pretty much dismantled the house room um, he'd pulled locker doors off, he'd done all sorts of things. The rest of the kids in the, the house, 70 kids in the house, just wanted him out of there. They didn't know what to what to do with him sort of thing. I sort of felt the same way to start with. I tried different things. I tried talking to him about his parenting. I'd done all that sort of stuff. I'd sit down and try to talk to him, and he was, his eyes would roll around his head. He couldn't hear what I was, what I was saying. He had a few, a few troubles. Slowly went along, stuck with it. We slowly went along, and I finally got a, a little bit of a connection uh, with him. It was through using really simple techniques. Never try to talk to him in my office. Never try to talk to him outside a classroom. Never try to talk to him in front of his friends. Like all these sort of things that might seem really obvious, you couldn't do anything like that with him. I found I had to fall in next to him. So when he was walking, I could catch him as he was walking somewhere, fall in next to him not looking in the eye, not looking face-to-face. That was just too intimidating. You would just rebel sort of thing. So try and be walking along. Hopefully there's a distraction. So if there's a footy match on at lunchtime, we could be walking along or watching the footy as long as we're both looking out and not looking at each other. Slowly, we started getting a little bit going. And when I say slowly, a little bit going, I mean like grunts at first, you know, little, little grunts. Slowly, I got to know a little bit of his story. I think he finally realised I was actually interested in him and interested to know how I could sort of help him get through his uh, five years with me. Turned out he had a very difficult uh, childhood. And I think he actually started over a couple of years to realise that was why he was behaving this way. Um, We dug away uh, and eventually when this kid left year 12, he came and uh, knocked on my uh, office door there. He'd never been to my office. He wouldn't speak to me in the office door. And he brought me a brand new skateboard. He said, oh, I made this for you. I said, what? You made a skateboard. He'd actually gone and bought all the parts for a skateboard, built it, you know, made the deck himself, all this sort of stuff. He said, I just want to thank you. You know, no one ever really listened before. It's like, no. All this kid wanted was someone to listen to him, not tell him off. Hard to do when you first meet a kid and he's just, you know, it's hard to listen to someone who's ripping the locker doors off in your uh, house room. Um, but it went to sort of show that a bit of patience goes a long way. And, yeah, a little bit of not putting yourself in combat with kids goes a long way too. It's easy to say when I'm sitting here on a podcast talking to you when you're in the thick of it, <laughs> dealing with a 15-year-old boy who's, you know, two feet taller than you and, yeah, a little bit of patience and, yeah, just trying to put a bit of a shock absorber between 
yourself and their actions and dig down to the kid that's underneath and yeah, it can go a fair way. Yeah. And do you have any sort of particular approach when it comes to in the moment, how to actually deal with it? Do you just separate? Like what would, what would you actually do when he's ripping a locker door off? Well, not him particularly, but a, a, a child, for instance. Okay, I think one of um, Newton's laws is like every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So a person can actually only push on you if you push back. Um, you know, so there can't be any, they only put force on you if you put force back. So whether that's physically or even just verbally, is just to sort of step back. So you can either do that metaphorically or, or physically always sort of back back a person will wear will literally wear their energy out before they you know so that's that's sort of the i suppose the ethos of dealing with that in the heat of the moment the other thing is you can't expect to win every battle right there you know you're, you're sort of wanting to win the war not the battles sometimes you have to accept that you've turned up there and there's going to be two more locker doors ripped off before you you know before you've got where you want to go so I think sometimes um, is to remember that with some kids, this, we're talking about extreme cases here, some kids you've got to remember you're playing a long game and not expect to sort of change things quickly. You'd be surprised how quickly even the most difficult kids work out which adults actually care about them. They quickly stop ripping the locker doors off if they can see that you care about them. They've got an amazing uh, radar for being nurtured. They, Particularly these kids who need it, they'll, they'll find the, the parents or uh, teachers or adults who genuinely care about them, they'll work it out. So if that's sort of in your heart, it tends to work out. Now, it's interesting you say that because I was just going to wonder, um, I mean, teaching's in your blood. You've you've really wanted to do it for some time uh, and it, it, you've gone back to it as well, haven't you, throughout your career? Yep. So yep. do you think there was a time in your childhood when you knew who you'd become? Gee, that's a good question you mean with respect to teaching. Yeah. No, I don't reckon. I, I think when I was a kid at school, I probably wasn't thinking that deeply about it, but I would have thought being a teacher would be the last thing I'd do. I suppose I was like many kids. I like school and you know, I enjoyed everything there, but I was like, as soon as I finish year 12, I'm going to blow this popcorn down. I'm out of here. The world's my oyster. You know, let's go. So I think, why would I want to be coming back, back to a school? So in fact, I did go and do different things, worked as an engineer, worked you know, different different places. It was actually the thing that got me into teaching the first time I was working as an engineer. And they were putting me through some psychometric uh, tests and working. I was going on a bit of a leadership development thing. And everything came out of these tests that what I really liked was working with uh, training and working with kids. And they tried to give me a, a training role within that organisation. It's like, you know what, I think I'd really like to be a teacher. And I asked my boss at the time, I was working for a big uh, water treatment company. So that's a crazy idea. I think I might have been 22 or three or, or just out. So I'd love to take a year off and just do a teaching degree, just so I've sort of done it, you know, go and see what it's all about. Do the teaching rounds, have it under my belt, and then come back. He's like, all right, we'll give you leave without pay for a year. Go on and do it. Went and did it. The teaching round was in a very difficult school. And I remember in my very first class teaching the solar system or something. I was like, wow, people get paid for this. This is just mucking around with kids. <laughs> so I was stuck it out for a, for a year, got to the end of the year, and I went back to my boss. I said, mate, look, I've got to do it. I've got to do teaching for just one year. Can I take another year's leave without pay? 
then I will have done it. I will have been a full-time teacher. It will be like a holiday. I want to take it like a sabbatical kind of thing. So if I'll give you one more year, that's it. Did the, got a job at a private school. Went and did it for a year and halfway through I rang him up. I said, that's it. I'll never be an engineer again. And I never was. Just, yeah, compared to, for me, compared to turning up to uh, factories or office places with all adults, turning up somewhere that's 90% kids, yeah, it is, it is like holiday. <laughs> and during that time, did anyone stand out as a mentor or someone you really looked to sort of model their behavior as like a great teacher to look up to? Yeah, I had a few at my the school I went to. Um, there was one guy, Dave Kerno, who was, I suppose, they call, he was my history teacher. They called him the outreach uh, coordinator. I thought he was a, um, a pretty cool guy when I was at uh, school, big barrel-chested bloke coached the footy team, took the surf team, all that sort of stuff. So I sort of connected through sport, I suppose. Um, but when I look back in hindsight, uh, he was just one of those really warm-hearted big men. You know, he sort of, you know, when you see him from a distance, you might think big, tough, you know, gnarly exterior but with the big, the big soft heart sort of thing. I'll never forget, I joined the surf team when I was a bit younger than the uh, other kids on the surf team and we'd gone down south to a pretty remote place surfing, which you could do easily in those days. I don't think there are any permission forms or anything like that. And we're surfing a place that's down a, uh, down a cliff and in pretty remote, uh, rugged surf. And I remember after a long surf, carrying a backpack of uh, wetsuit up this uh, hill and really uh, struggling. All the bigger kids were getting up and I was sort of falling behind. I remember him sort of coming back down the hill and scooping up my stuff, like scooping up my um, my bag and board and all that sort of stuff and just like charging up the hill ahead of me. I was like, wow, <laughs> this guy's awesome. And maybe some of that stuff uh, stuck because, yeah, I think I think when I was thinking about being a teacher, I was like, Dave Kerno's a teacher. That would be cool enough for me. There was something, there was something in there, you know. It was probably, probably deeper than him being a cool guy. It was probably that, you know, he sort of showed me that, Big tough men can have a soft heart too. So, yeah, I thought that's something I wanted. Ah, awesome. And um, I guess, are there any situations that you've sort of put yourself into or, or do you find yourself in more nowadays because of the approaches you're taking? Has your actual teaching approach changed quite a bit over the years, do you think? How have you evolved? Um, I've sort of evolved out of the classroom a little bit. So, we're probably talking less about my kind of uh, academic approach, like you know, how I teach kids to think, which is a really important thing, and probably more into the welfare sphere. So how I um, connect disconnected kids and, um, yeah, not just working with troubled kids, but, yeah, helping kids find a path, I suppose. It might not even be troubled kids. It might be just kids that haven't got much vision or direction, how we sort of help them find something that, um, at least motivates them in the short and medium term. So I suppose I've kind of, I don't know whether that's been intentional or it's just happened, but um, it's sort of where I prefer to be now. So, you know, if you had have asked me a couple of years ago, oh, would you like to be in the management of a school or working in, you know, working in the classroom or something? The classroom, don't give me, don't put me in the offices sort of thing. <laughs> but now I can see I'm working in sort of more, almost more important work with groups of kids and setting the school up in a way where it's, um, yeah, receptive to the many and varied needs of kids because um, kids attending school to learn about reading, writing and arithmetic is sort of becoming a thing of the past. How are you actually changing the environment within the school? Um, 
I think the kids, you know, students' needs are changing, so we're responding to that. When the Western schooling system was set up in, you know, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, schools were designed as basically training facilities, um, I suppose in simple terms, to teach kids facts, to teach them things. So uh, go in there and fill their heads full of knowledge. Uh, go into a room with 20 kids, the teacher will tell you how it is, you'll copy it off the blackboard and hopefully learn a fair bit of it up and reproduce it on a test. Not much point teaching kids any of those things. They can Google it all now anyway. Um, and we don't really know what we're training the kids for. So I don't know what kind of jobs will even be around in 30 years' time. So uh, trying to train a student for something is kind of irrelevant. We're hoping to, I guess, impart some skills or competencies in kids, resilience, curiosity, um, you know, a whole bunch of sort of things. And we can do that by doing more interesting things than having kids sit in uh, rows of desks and copying down facts. In fact, we can let kids take up all sorts of uh, different opportunities outside and inside the classroom. And technology is allowing us to do that as well. Even 10 or 15 years ago, if you stacked the curriculum full of uh, all sorts of opportunities for kids to go off campus and, um, you know, some kids might be doing an outdoor ed activity where they're go, uh, going up to Falls Creek. Others might be uh, putting on a play. There might be a whole bunch of different things going on. You would have copped a lot of heat 10 or 15 years ago because the maths teacher would be like, how can I deliver my course here? The kids are never in front of me. Half the, half the kids are away every week and it's a different bunch of kids every day. Nowadays, the content, the kids are getting through a whole bunch of different means. They're certainly never copying it from the whiteboard or the blackboard. Um, Teachers are putting their lessons on a, a OneNote or a Google Drive, or they're sharing. They may not be making the resource. They might be sharing a freely available resource. Uh, and the classroom is flipped. So the kids are learning a fair bit of the basic content at their own pace, and they're using their contact time when they're in the room with the teacher to actually go over things, workshop things, ask questions, um, have dialogue. Um, so there's a couple of things happening. There's a driving force for us to teach less facts and teach more competencies, I suppose. Uh, and technology is supporting us in doing that. So um, we can allow kids to have more diverse programs. So if you uh, interviewed 50 kids at our school, they probably all have a completely different week. There'll be lots of similar things, but yeah, they'd all be doing something slightly different. So yeah, it's kind of exciting. We're getting freed up. The teaching world is becoming freed up by technology. Uh, we do a lot more fun stuff with kids um, and less grinding it out yeah that's that's how i see it oh awesome yeah and this, the school certainly seems like it's you know really pushing ahead of of many other schools in in that sphere as well yeah it's trying to be brave i mean it's, it's, we're not the only school uh doing it it takes a bit of confidence i suppose to say look we're going to sort of step just a little bit aside of the traditional model and do something different we're going to focus on um you know, let, let's think about what are some of the traits we'd like to see in kids, have them think about the traits they'd like to see in themselves and then design programs around that uh, rather than uh, we would like to produce engineers, doctors, lawyers, may end up doing that um, but rather than running courses that are just for that. Let's try and run courses that are designed about the kinds of kids we'd like to see coming out the other end and that's in terms of you know, who they are, their worldview, the way they think, the way they solve a problem, all those kind of things. Uh, I think the jobs will find them in the end. So yeah, I guess it's I guess it's moving away from a vocational model. What um what are the things that you would advise 
parents to actually get around their kids more or, or help in supporting what you're doing at the school. If you could talk to parents one-to-one, what would you actually say would really help you, uh, you know, uh, running the school to actually get the most out of the kids? I suppose not so much from a running the school perspective, but to well, advise so, so, parents. Yeah, in, a, in a teacher sense. Yeah, I mean, it's all about the kid. It's all about trying to um, provide the best you can for any particular kid. Um, and sometimes the best provision for a kid uh, may not be what that kid has told their parent. Um, I was a kid, you know. I always tried to get out of as much work as I possibly <laughs> could at times. You know, even if it's really fun stuff, a 15-year-old boy will find the path of least resistance. There is no <laughs> doubt about it. Yeah. So sometimes it's almost worth, um, you know, there's a contact a contact made home from a a teacher or something like that, um, yeah, being willing to sort of be willing to put it to your uh, kid and maybe um, take the neutral ground rather than siding with, with your student. It's a very common, I was saying to you before, it's, a very, it's very common um, for parents to want to be best friends with their kids uh, and not necessarily parent them. And I think that's coming, coming from um, so many parents working longer and longer hours They've got less and less time to spend with their kids uh, and they want to make sure it's good quality fun time. They don't want to uh, take up any of that time with have you done your homework or uh, what are you working on or what are your uh, projects. They just want to provide and give to their kids. Uh, And sometimes that's actually stealing from the kids. Actually, you might be uh, stealing an opportunity for your kid to develop a bit of resilience or um, deal with their teacher or whatever it is they need to do rather than uh, helicoptering in and trying to save them. In fact, when you helicopter in and try and save your kid from dealing with the dailiness of life, you might be stealing the opportunity from your your kid to learn something. So, yeah, it sort of sounds like a negative lens, but there is a a pattern emerging where, yeah, parents are finding it hard to, to do some of those traditional parenting things. Some of the traditional stuff is good. Got it. Okay. And what about the actual overall, I guess, meta skill of learning as well? Do you have any sort of insights or tips that, you know, you'd pass on to someone that was just new to parenting or approaches that you've seen work really well? Yeah. I mean, for us, I mean, I can think of myself as a a parent. My firstborn kid, uh, Addis, very uh, black and white, wants to be first in everything, wants to win everything, uh, and it's been a, a slow shift for him. He would, I would consider his natural mind state to be quite quite fixed, fixed mindset sort of kid. So to take him from a point of not from things uh, right or wrong or first and last or you've won or you've got the top mark or you've, uh, you've come first in something, but to that sort of slowly shifting into that growth mindset of continually developing and continually uh, learning, even simple little things like um, the Carol Dweck stuff, which is uh, inserting the the not yet, you know, not yet, yeah. not yet, not yet. So rather than sort of uh, saying, you know, he might like to say, you know, is this drawing good? He's, he's thinking, is this drawing perfect? Uh, <laughs> you know, that's what, that's what he would be thinking, throwing the not yet in there, you know. So, yeah, it's quite possible we're going to move to a better and better and better drawing. And then you can do that by just questioning, you know. Yeah, getting getting to embrace the process. Yeah, which bit did you enjoy working on? What was the hardest bit? Why did you do this bit? So rather than 
uh, being fixed mindset yourself rather than with your kid bringing you something. I'm talking about a seven-year-old, but whether it's a seven-year-old or a 15-year-old talking about their schooling rather than saying that's good or that's bad or yes, no, pass, fail, any of those sort of uh, binary conversations, just ask them some questions about the process. So try and you know, desperately, desperately try and move away from the result because the result can always be improved, I suppose. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, but yes, yeah, start yeah. Ask, asking some questions about the, the process. What was hard? What, what did you enjoy? What would you do next time? What would you do differently? Any of those types of questions, um, open-ended and about the process, are always helpful. And we've seen it with our little kids starting to move on to. They're offering now, but next time I might do this. And, you know, <laughs> awesome. That's really satisfying to see that little change in a kid who, you know, had that natural uh, I suppose you call it pretty fixed mindset. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because something I was reading only last week was how to sometimes deal with a, you know, one of your children drawing and where if you always say, oh, that's really good, uh, which yeah. was absolutely my tendency, they can see right through that. And most of the time they won't think it's good. And then they just think your point of view is just, you know, hot air. Whereas yeah. if you can just call out what the picture is, oh, Oh, that's I love the way you've drawn that wave and that color yeah. you chose there was really interesting. I that makes me yeah. think of this, yeah. and and describing what you see rather than what you think about the 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 item being good or bad or judging it. Totally. And then yeah. all of a sudden they're not they don't realize well they they totally see that you you're not judging it and so therefore yeah. it's not good or bad. You're just yeah. seeing something that they've put on paper. You've seen what they've done or you've heard what they've yeah. said. And um, I was trying it with Ali, and and it made such a massive difference. I was like, "Damn it! Why did no one tell me that before?" Yeah. <laughs> so a good little one, a good little one uh, related to that. You know, look on a routine might be something like see, think, wonder. So you might say, "Oh, this is what I see. I see this. Oh, this makes me think something." So you're talking about the drawing there. Oh, I see you've done a wave. Oh, that makes me think of that time you and I were surfing. And then you might finish with, "Oh, it makes me wonder about." makes me wonder about what it would be like to be in that way or whatever it is you know it's a good little uh routine where you're sort of endorsing what you've you've seen there it makes you think but then what about what could be next you know it makes me wonder about something next i love doing that with my kids when we read at night it's easy enough to lie down and either read to them or they read to me or whatever whatever it is but i love like cutting that a bit short or whatever we finish a chapter and starting asking asking them questions about well they're only little kids what might come next is a simple question but asking them questions about what's going on in the background or, you know, we're reading a faraway tree, you know, what what do you think this guy's sister's like or, what you know, like, you know, just making up other characters. And they, you know, that's great for them too. So they're always thinking about being um, creators rather than consumers. Yeah, I like it. And what other routines would you have up your sleeve, Jason? Oh, all of a sudden you're Because this is cracking. gold. <laughs> I've just drank cracking. gold here. <laughs> I know, you just made me think of one there. I can't think of another one off the top of my head. <laughs> we'll have to do round two. Yeah, you got me there. <laughs> no, I really, I really like that. And like you say, with the stories as well. An interesting one uh, we've just done as well. It was Annie's just finished the whole Harry Potter um, series. Yeah. And um, absolutely loving it. But now we've just started reading Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. And awesome. It's just so good that she's loving a completely alternate version of Harry yeah. Potter based on if the universe, uh, if the, would you say the universe of Harry Potter was written uh, yeah. through a, a totally rational lens? And, yeah, cool. um Yeah, so 
it's uh it's it's great to explore another version of a story that Annie loves so well so yeah. much and so. we we can take that you know as parents we can take that to do anything we're doing with our kids by just thinking about what if you know like yeah whenever you're whether it's reading a book or playing a game or going for a walk or whatever just that, just thinking even just starting a sentence with what if yeah kids love that you know yeah what if we turned that way what if we went that way what if we were doing this in no shoes? What if, you know, just asking what if. Kids <laughs> love that sort of thing. And they, and they switch into creator mode. Yeah. I was talking about um, son very rarely um, would look on YouTube or whatever. We were looking up some things. It was when we were looking up the um, stick insect versus the praying mantis. We were looking at some <laughs> Celebrity on. death match. Yeah. We were looking at some <laughs> things on uh, YouTube. And he was like, oh, this is, this is so cool. You know, there's so much stuff on here. You know, he's only seven, so he's just uncovering the world of the, the internet i suppose you know, it's, you know just a little bit of it it's always kind of with me and we, we were talking about it he said oh there's so much thing so much stuff on here and it just got me thinking boy i hope this kid doesn't become just a consumer of the things that are on the internet or a consumer of youtube i hope he is a creator i hope he's someone who's putting the good stuff on there and i put that to him so there's heaps of good stuff on here and you should be one of, you should be putting stuff on here and i reckon that's a you know, really important thing for kids to remember that they're a big part of creating this world, not just consuming and, you know, watching it flow by. Yeah. I'd take any opportunity to get him onto making something rather than using something. That's awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's so easy, isn't it, when they're just watching TV to just consume. Yeah, yeah. But um, getting the camera out, start recording. Get on the other side of the camera, just yeah. like what you're doing now. <laughs> no, what we're doing, Jason, what we're doing. Yeah, true. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you're making something, you're not listening to a podcast, you're creating one. Um, so why couldn't our kids be that, you know, rather than watching something, make a show, do a puppet show, put on a show for us or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah and they love it. They come to life, don't they, when they do it? You can, yeah, they, we all they can... want to create something. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it just slowly gets knocked out of you. Yep. <laughs> until you, until you well, claim they, it back. Yeah, there's some pretty big claims around it. Or schools in particular kill creativity. They do. You ask a, a little kid, can you dance? Of course I can dance. Can I paint? I can paint. I can sing. If you ask an 18-year-old, can you dance or paint or sing? Only the one who does painting says he can paint. The rest say, I, I can't paint. Or can she sing? No, I don't do singing lessons. I can't sing. So we slowly do start to believe that we can't do all those things when we were born doing them. We were born scientists. We were born creators. We were, you know, you know Every little toddler is doing science experiments all day long, testing things and working out how the world works. But we slowly let it go, actually, is what happens. So schools need to change to hang hang on to that creativity. Yeah. And you, what would you say it is? Is it the language we use around that? What what ekes away each time or undermines? Yeah, the language is a big part of it. I think our – I'll call it the traditional schooling system. It's a schooling system that lots of people my age and – above think of because it's a schooling system we went to as kids yeah we all um, did yeah we're the same age yeah, where big groups of kids are all doing the same thing at the same time and then the same test at the end of the unit irrespective of their ability so if you happen to be good in that area you probably knew 90 percent of what's on the test before you started the unit um, and then you polished it up and did the test right through to the kid that didn't couldn't even get a, a start on it just treating all those uh, kids the same is, of course, going to erode a lot of creativity. Unless you happen to be just the right, you know, Goldilocks kid in there that's, you know, it's just the right amount of challenge for you and you just happen to learn something that just happens to be interesting to you, 
every other kid starts to realize this, this schooling is kind of boring. Yeah. So as we're now moving into the schooling that we're starting to offer in the 21st century, which is much more individualized, choose your own adventure, which we can do using technology because we can do so much intermeshing, intermeshing and Chris, Chris, wow, tangled. <laughs> take two, intermeshing <laughs> and um, you know, crisscrossing classes. Students are now able to pick up something they're interested in, do it more at their own rate, extend it. Um, yeah, we're actually doing a better job of keeping kids interested and so creative. Yeah, and you mentioned just then as well, just the right amount of challenge, which I think is critical, isn't it? Yeah, it's much easier now to offer that to kids than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when they just sat there in front of you and the thing the teacher put up there had to be just right. Yeah, well, it was pitched at one kid, the the middle kid in the class, or usually more towards the top end of the class. Yeah, it's just darn lucky if it's right for them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, exciting times. I mean, what what do you see for the future then of schooling? I mean, obviously, your school is pushing right ahead as it is right now, but say 10, 15, 20 years down the line, what, what are you excited about the future? One thing that's exciting me at the moment is I think we'll stop eventually or it'll be greatly reduced the threat of the test um you know i work in senior education so you're moving towards the end of schooling and the transfer over to uh, whether it's university college tafe or whatever kids go on to to do and in australia or victoria where we are it's the exams at the end these big exams we've got to study up for these exams that's what it's all about and in fact in the last year or two of schooling the fun of schooling can be forgotten. It can actually be forgotten because we've got these big tests that'll get us into, we're actually moving away from that. The The world is evolving and it's starting to happen now. This is like very exciting. So in Victoria, where we are, it's called the ATAR, which is your um, tertiary entrance rank. Up until even just a few years ago, that was essential. If you're going to do anything academic for the study after school, you need an ATAR, which is basically your rank. Just rank every kid in Victoria and the top kid, kid gets 99.75 all the way down, and then that'll tell you where you can go next. It's like the start of the treadmill. Work hard in these exams so you can get into university. Work hard in university so you can get a good job. Work hard in that good job so you can get a promotion. But just getting on that treadmill, the tertiary providers are getting smarter. They're starting to realise that the best fit for our courses isn't necessarily the kids in the band uh, 60 to 88 are we need to find out other things about kids other than just how they went on tests and the universities are starting to get better at it in fact the number of kids that are now completing their final year year 12 without an ATAR deciding not to do the exams even just learn the stuff is increasing and I think over the next five or ten years the relevance of the ATAR the score at the end of school uh, will slip away uh, and tertiary providers will be able to find other things out about kids to make sure they get the right kids picking their their courses, whether it's their own uh, metrics, whether it's um, a thing called micro-credentialing, which is as you go through school, you start to build up some credentials for different skills and um, capacities and competences you have. I think we're going to get way more sophisticated at that. So that'll take take away the big stick, maybe not take it away altogether, but greatly reduce the big stick of the test at the end and kids just start following their interests and passions and start building a vocation out of that and the big exams will just start to disappear 
Uh, exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going like to be good. That. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be good. What sort of books have really been inspirational for you as a person, Jase? Um, I reckon this comes back more to the, you know, we sort of started talking about parenting and then we got a bit into education, which is a different, a different thing, really. I probably, well, I've been reading novels lately. I just got into a bit of it, went through a bit of a Tim Winton uh, phase. Um, it's got some dark stuff in there, but it's yeah. really got, yeah, it's, which is not like me, but I sort of had a little phase. I read The Shepherd's Hut, which was his newest one, and then I started doubling back through some of his old, his old stuff. And it really got me thinking about that. I think it might have been he, Tim Winton that coined the phrase toxic masculinity. Um, you know, that facade that we also, you know, I'm raising boys, right? I've got two, two boys, I'm a man. You know, this facade of what it is to be a man and how, you know, the traditional model of, you know, tough guy and all that sort of yeah. stuff and how uh, toxic that is. Um, so that's kind of been inspiring me, even if it's in a negative way. It's got me thinking about what's important and how important it is to show my kids uh, how not just okay but how good it is to reveal your tender or, you know, your inner self or your true self. Yeah. I think our world still is conditioned towards boys will be boys and, you know, if you're a boy, you'll do this. Even though we're trying to move away from it, there's so much in our world that tells a boy what a boy should be. In fact, you know, it could be any kind of boy inside there, any kind of person inside there. So, yeah, yeah, inspiration is yeah, – that's what I've been reading lately, but it's got me thinking about that. So almost that an, an away goal, like I'm yeah, kind of, not going to be like that. Yeah, just making sure we take care of, you know, our little fellas. Um and be aware of whether it's as extreme as toxic masculinity or even just stereotyping, just sort of being aware of that with our with our kids. So, yeah, I kind of got that from the last yeah, book or two I read. I've started thinking about that a lot. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. It's a, it's a great thought and definitely love uh, a bit of Tim Winton writing. Yeah, they just always end bad, though. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I went back and um, read Breath again. That's the um, one I read recently. <laughs> Yeah, which is great. I love all the surfing and it's yeah. all positive and these boys the are out holding. doing great stuff and then it well, yeah, just always they always just turn nasty just in goes, the end. Just goes pear shaped. <laughs> I reckon you could read them all till, you know, twenty pages from the end and then just put them down. You're probably just as happy. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a great no, idea. They're good. They're great. Yeah. Awesome. Well uh, I'm highly aware that uh I have kept you up late, Jason. Um really appreciate You've done, well. <laughs> You've done well, mate. Thank you. <laughs> No, really appreciate having you come on the show and and talk. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. And um, I just wondered, is there a way that people can reach out to you if they're interested to connect? Um, look, I haven't got that many much going on the socials. They'll find they'll find me on Instagram and Facebook. That's about it. Um, but they can shoot me a, a note through you, and yeah, we'll connect from there. Okay, sounds great. Awesome. Um, well, uh, like I say, thanks very much, Jason. Let's. Uh, call it a day there but uh look forward to uh talking to you again soon good on you buddy always good to chat thanks ever so much for listening and if you'd like to connect with jason just shoot me an email by going to the website thedadmindset.com while you're there if you'd like to subscribe i'll make sure to send you an email whenever new episodes are live as well as the show notes that go along with them well it's time to go for now i hope you've had a great week And uh, in the meantime, make sure you enjoy your caffeinated beverage.